Hello, and welcome to Prairie Design Lab, coming to you from the Faculty of Architecture at the University of Manitoba. I'm Terry McLeod, your host, producer, and writer. Prairie Design Lab is a podcast created by a lot of dedicated designers and thinkers who are focused on the built environment on the prairies and beyond. Some are University of Manitoba graduates, others are faculty or students, others still are collaborators and supporters of the Faculty of Architecture. Today's episode number 36 is titled Bapewin, which is Anishinaabemowin for surviving, overcoming. A national monument with that name could soon be built in the national capital region that will memorialize discrimination against LGBTQ2 plus people in Canada, including those impacted by what is known as the LGBT purge in the 1950s through the 1990s. The monument is directed by a court order that was issued in 2018 as part of the national class action lawsuit brought against the government of Canada by survivors of the purge. Five teams are competing to be chosen to design the monument, which will tell the story of generations of LGBTQ2 plus people in Canada who've been persecuted, abused, dismissed, and marginalized because of who they desire and how they identify. It will acknowledge discrimination experienced by these communities and the abuse perpetrated by the Canadian state. The monument will recognize enduring injury and injustice, and it will educate, memorialize, celebrate, and inspire. It'll be guided by principles of inclusion, indigeneity, visibility, and timelessness. Bapewin is the working title of the Team SOM Monument Proposal. SOM is an American architecture firm with offices worldwide, and Team SOM has strong Winnipeg connections. Five members of that team join us now from Winnipeg, Berlin, and New York City. They are McGill-trained Canadian-Lebanese architect Rami Abu Khalil, who is the project leader and an associate principal with SOM in New York City. Hello, Rami. Nice to meet you. Hello, Terry. We're also joined from Winnipeg by independent filmmaker, sculptor, and multimedia artist Noam Gonick. Hello, Noam Gonick. Hi, Terry. Historian Lyle Dick of Winnipeg is with us, too. He is currently the senior advisor at a firm called No History, Inc., K-N-O-W, with a long career as a senior public historian with Parks Canada. And hello, Lyle Dick. Hi, Terry. Nice to be with you. Glenn Manning is a senior partner with Winnipeg's HTFC Planning and Design. He's here as well. Hello, Glenn Manning. Hey, Terry. Great to be part of this. And Araklis Lambrapoulos is with us from Berlin in Germany, where he is an associate at ARP Deutschland and a digital systems consultant in advanced building engineering. Hello, Araklis. Hi, Terry. Nice to be here. Chris Cooper of SOM New York is our lead architect, but is not with us today. Rebecca Belmore, who contributed much to the SOM proposal, is also unable to join us today because she's working intensively on a project in the United States. She's known for politically conscious and socially aware performance and installation work. She is an Anishinaabe and a member of the Laksul First Nation in northwestern Ontario. Hello, all of you, and thanks for joining us on Prairie Design Lab. Right on. A question for you, Rami, to begin. You're the leader of Team SOM. What attracted you to entering the competition to design Canada's LGBTQ2 plus national monument? 
know, on the one hand, we read the brief and the brief was exceptionally well written in its acknowledgement of the challenge of the site and its acknowledgement of the difficult story that has to be told. And so it really was a challenge that we wanted to embrace. And then once we started thinking about our collaborators, we realized that we had a really strong team of collaborators here between Rebecca's artistic input, Noam's understanding of queer history, Glanner's kind of ability to really root this in a local landscape. Of course, Lyle's kind of historical outlook and Heraclitus' expertise, we knew that we could really put together something that was very experiential, very different, and very unique. Rami, if you had to describe Bapewin in two sentences, what would you say? Bapewin represents the oppression of LGBTQ2 plus people by creating a field of hundreds of highly mirrored flagpoles that we call wands that invite visitors to explore their own path to justice, each in our own individual way. And these wands emerge out of a healing landscape surrounded by indigenous plants, as well as a boreal forest that creates a sense of enclosure and a sense of safety. The wands create a space that's both monumentally scaled, they're almost nine meters tall, highly visible from the surroundings, but also extremely delicate, extremely diffuse, and almost invisible because of their mirrored nature once you're walking through them. And so they're both present and nebulous at the same time. And we really like that tension between the two. When people come to see Bapewen, they descend into a space through uh, indigenous plants and healing trees and come across a field of highly polished stainless steel wands or like flagpoles that have been stripped of their flags. And as they walk through those poles, they hear a soundscape of words and phrases called from the purges, the fruit machine in Ottawa in the 1960s. And then they come to a clearing in the center where there is a low heated warming table where people can come together in community and healing. Lyle Dick, you're an historian, and I've read your deep paper about LGBTQ2 plus history in Canada. For those who don't know, what was the purge? The purge was a purge of public servants, members of the Canadian military, the RCMP, which was sweeping in its nature. And because of uh, the situation in the 50s when uh, there was... It's the period of McCarthyism in the United States, fears of communism and concerns about uh, security and so on. The federal government uh, followed the American government's lead and uh, decided they would uh, marginalize all LGBTQ2 plus people that they could find in the, the employ of the federal government on the mistaken assumption that they were security risks. And so it was an extraordinary witch hunt under the government of former Prime Minister John Diefenbaker, initiated in 1959, that basically purged thousands of gay men, lesbians, and other LGBTQ2 plus people before the decriminalization of sex between two males, 21 and over, in 1969. But the purge, nevertheless, 
continued beyond the standard federal government departments and agencies in the RCMP, the Canadian military, and in the Department of External Affairs, now Foreign Affairs. And it was not until several members of national defense who had been unjustly purged in the late uh, 1980s, including Michelle Douglas, who is now the chair of the Purge Fund. She and others brought suit against the federal government, and the federal government saw that it was going to lose that suit based on our rights under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms of Canada's Constitution. And so they threw in the towel, and uh, the result is that money was made available for this incredible monument project. I was a federal public servant for 35 years, starting in 1977, and I'm a gay man, and uh, it has often occurred to me, if my career had started just a decade earlier, how different things might have been. I could have had my uh, career destroyed, and indeed, in the 60s, there were many um, LGBTQ2 plus people who were purged who had their careers destroyed. There were suicides. It was all uh, based on nothing other than an ideology that saw them as weak in character, liable to be security risks. So it's often occurred to me that could have been me. Noam Gonick, you're a very public figure in art in, in Winnipeg. What attracted you to this project? Well, I had been researching the Purge and the Fruit Machine um, for some film projects. You refer to the Fruit Machine. What does that mean? Well, the Fruit Machine was a project that took place in Ottawa in the uh, early 60s. And it was uh, Carleton University professor, Professor Wake, Frank Wake. And he devised a system that he thought could winnow out the queer civil servants from the straits. And it was, as Lyle was saying, there was a real study afoot to see how they could so-called protect their ranks from infiltration by queers and security risks and that kind of thing. Some people thought it would be effective to have this test. And so people would have to be forced to undergo psychological testing and other forms of um, listening to words, agreeing or disagreeing with phrases. And Professor Wake thought that with his fruit machine, he could tell you uh, who was a gay and lesbian and who was normal or straight. And the name, the fruit machine, was actually applied by the RCMP because members of the force did not want to take the test. And, you know, ultimately, the the fruit machine was a huge failure and a waste of time and, and money for the government, but it actually scared a lot of people who had to take it. If, if you can kind of picture A Clockwork Orange by Kubrick, it was quite Kafkaesque. Greg Manning, if I could turn to you uh, at HTFC Planning and Design, why did you get engaged in this project? Our team had worked with Noam on a couple other projects around the city. So um, Heather Cram in our office has a pretty good working relationship and uh, we were invited to join. And there is a really uh, important landscape component as part of this monument. It's not just an, an object in a field, it's the field itself is quite an active part of the experience of the monument. Our role in it was really important and we really appreciate SOM connecting with us through Gnome and being part of this team because uh, I think the work that we did as a team, there's a really fantastic integration between the landscape elements and the monument elements themselves. So it's kind of, it's a great counterpoint and, and really nice combination of, of skill sets that came together. 
In what way is the site, uh, as you describe, an, an active field for the design? Part of the, the notion uh, that drove this, one of the fundamental ideas was that, and it comes from in, indigenous uh, knowledge, is that all healing begins in nature. So, you know, we wanted to make sure that the journey as you uh, encounter the monument itself, the monument proper, the, the forms in the center of the site, that you're passing through a natural area and that, that the sense of all of the, the lushness and the change, the color, the dynamism of the landscape is part of your kind of priming the experience uh, before you enter the monument. There's a lot of small parts and really nice ideas that come through, but you know, I think we can talk about the central concepts of the monument. And I, our sense was the landscape is supporting those ideas. You know, we aren't the, the main event. It's kind of like complementary in that way. I understand that you've worked with Rebecca Belmore in the past with indigenous placemaking. HDFC has what's that? Well, I'd say Heather's been working on the, and the notion of Indigenous placemaking, and, and we have to be really careful when we use terms like that, that we're not at a, in any way uh, appropriating, you know, the knowledge that doesn't belong to our culture, but instead we're sensitive to the uh, traditional knowledge in ways that are in a lot of the communities we work within. Our office does a lot of work around uh, the North and in remote communities. The things we've learned over the years are that how important it is to really step back and humbly approach the notion of placemaking, particularly when you're dealing with, with other cultures. So we, we take the lead from others. We, we look for the, the knowledge keepers in those communities to help us understand what are the needs there? What are the traditional ways of doing things? And, and how can we learn from those in order to create um, stronger and, and, uh, and connect better with the natural systems? Lyle, you've written about that site uh, near the Ottawa River and its Indigenous history. Why is it important to, in your view, weave into or give a prominence to the Indigenous history that is reflected in the site? The uh, National Capital Commission guidelines that Rami referred to specifically cite indigeneity as one of the core principles that uh, they're looking at for this uh, monument, and appropriately so. Uh, of course, the first LGBTQ people in Canada were here before Canada was constituted as uh, a nation state. And they were and are the two spirit people of uh, the indigenous nations of North America. This particular site is very close to an island in the middle of the Ottawa River, known, of course, by the British name. I, I'm not sure what the Anishinaabe name is, but nevertheless, uh, they had their own name for it. We know it as Victoria Island today. And that has uh, for a long time been considered of sacred importance to the Anishinaabe, formerly known as the Algonquin of the Ottawa Valley. It's really on the main portage that Indigenous peoples would have used when uh, ascending the Ottawa River to get around the Chaudière Falls, which are just a few hundred meters to the west. There's another portage on the other side of the Ottawa River. So Indigenous people have trod this terrain for literally thousands of years. Uh, there also was an Anishinaabe village on uh, the eastern end of uh, Victoria Island. So it is uh, shot through with uh, Indigenous significance. 
our team felt it was very important to acknowledge that in the planning for this proposal. Heraklis in, in Berlin, why did you join in? You're rather uh, a distance from Canada. What was your interest in this? Yes, that's true. Well, um, I very much enjoy working in the interface between architecture and uh, technology. I do have a background in acoustics and I focus a lot on the design of audio systems. So in many ways, this monument is is as much a, an acoustic experience as much as it is an architectural experience. So when Noam and Rami contacted me through um, a common friend, actually, to join forces in the design. Is that the, the um, common friend? Is that uh, Mr. Katulis? Yes, this is Mr. From Katulis, Alpha yeah. Masonry, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, give him my best, yeah. When this opportunity came up, I jumped. Uh, essentially, the role was to support the acoustic experience with the design of an audio concept, which would very much be concealed. So the system, essentially, that would be designed would be concealed, uh, but would still lead to covering the monument with a sort of homogeneous field, which would um, uh, sort of support, essentially, the soundscape concept developed by Rebecca and Noam. And I think we've done quite a good job with this, to be honest. What is the acoustic experience that you want people to get when they come to the site? The experience is essentially one of receiving discrete sounds arriving from different locations in a way that, to an extent, emulates, first of all, acoustic conditions that could possibly have been experienced during the purge. So we do use some equalization, some effects. We do use some reverberation to sort of emulate closed room conditions as well. But we try to sort of have sounds coming at different levels. Uh, we do have a grid of loudspeakers, but as one walks through them, one is essentially in the near, in the near field of loudspeakers in a way that due to the dispersion that we have calculated in the, in the monument, the sound from adjacent loudspeakers does not overlap, which essentially gives the impression to the visitor that sound comes discreetly from different locations as one walks from the outside of the monument towards the healing uh, central table. When visitors arrive to the monument, they will be surrounded by words and phrases that were called from Frank Wake's fruit machine experiment of the 1960s. So these were words that test subjects had to hear while their pulses were being monitored and the levels of sweat in their hands and their heart rates quickening when they heard colloquial queer slang or their pulses remaining steady when control words were put in. So it's all quite abstract. You hear gay slang of the era, but you also hear words that have absolutely no connotations and it almost becomes abstracted. You're surrounded by this pattern of language that really taps into your knowledge of what those words could or could not mean. In a nutshell, I would say that's the soundscape. And, you know, since this is a podcast, I think the absurdity of some of these words might actually be very valuable in this medium. I don't know if you have some of them handy, Noam, but maybe you could read some of them out. Words like restaurant, circus, tea room, punk, nail, uh, words like dyke, which, you know, were, you know, slurs of the era and today. I think dyke has been really reclaimed by our community. 
And then there were phrases like that test subjects would have to agree with or disagree with, like, um, you know, I would like to be a soldier or I would like to be a theater critic. <laughs> so you can guess what side uh, agreeing with that put you on. You know, I, I would like to be secretary. I consider myself somebody who would like to enter politics to change the world. So all these kind of psychological tests that Professor Wake was hoping could somehow lead to uh, a clear determination of, of the subject's sexuality. Uh, it was kind of hopeless, but it was really terrifying to the subject. It was hopeless in the sense that you, you can never really tell someone's sexuality by their response to certain words. But terrifying in that, it, you know, these abstract words could actually determine your future as an employee of the government, uh, the career ch choice that you've chosen. In using that for the sound art piece, Rebecca and I wanted to like stare sort of right uh, down the barrel of the gun of the issue of the horror and the ensuing trauma for the victims of the fruit machine, what they had to go through, how abstract it was, how arbitrary it was, just these words, words that when a visitor comes to the site, they might be flummoxed and think like, you know, why am I hearing the word circus piped through and wafted in the words restaurant? And yet there is a certain evilness in it all because your reactions to those words will determine your fate. So we wanted to give the attendees, the visitors of this monument, just a sense of what it was like in that chilling era. I may add here that in many ways, as you're actually approaching from the periphery of the monument all the way to the center, to this healing table, essentially you go through many different possible pathways through the agony that one could possibly have experienced as you find your way towards the healing table in the middle. And what's the healing table look like, Rami? So we wanted the monument to really reflect opposing conditions that we felt really captured queer experiences and certainly the purge. On the one hand, you have to walk through a solitary field of poles. Those force you to walk mainly alone. And that's a very, very large field of hundreds of mirrored stainless steel poles. That's a solitary condition. And that's where the sound piece really plays out around you as you're walking between these wands, as we call them. But then in the middle of this field is a clearing. So you're going from solitude to community. And in the center of the clearing is a circular table at which visitors are invited to gather. The table can be heated in the winter to provide a counterpoint of warmth, which we know is extremely important and is very subtly engraved to mark the four cardinal quadrants that orient the whole monument in the cardinal directions, again, in a hint at indigenous traditions and orientations. We felt it was extremely important after the solitary journey and after, you know, what for many people will be a very traumatic narrative to come together in the center in a, in, in a meditative but collective moment. Glenn Manning, I'm curious as to what you folks from HTFC would have done with the realization, as Rami just put it, of the potential distress that people might experience visiting the site. In what way was your landscape and design work taking those things into account to make the experience more affecting? We were looking to provide some spaces within the landscape that had some moments where there could be contemplation 
little bit of serenity, the various experiences that landscapes can offer and within the quite varied landscape, because one of the other really important notions. It's, a, it's very garden-esque. There's quite an, an, a lot of different plants within there, different colors and textures, and some of them quite extravagant and lush, and some of them a little, little rougher around the edges. So all those things come together to provide people with different opportunities to nestle into that landscape and use those moments to contemplate what those experiences have been, or in some cases to prepare themselves for the experiences they're going in. So it's it's really a, it's like a support service in a way for the entire uh, the monument itself. Rami, what did it take to arrive at a consensus on the design? I understand that you like to bring forward in the creative discussions about the, the monument, what you call provocations. What are provocations? Because we really wanted the monument to be timeless and we wanted it to really respond to very difficult emotional prompts that are present in the brief. We almost didn't start sketching until we really developed a series of very well-defined intentions. And then we tried to let those intentions really drive the aesthetic decisions or the, or the design decisions, to put it, in, uh, to put it in, a, in another way. For example, we knew we had to represent a struggle and make this struggle both visible and invisible. We wanted it to be both monumentally scaled, but also very intimate and almost uh, disappear. And we feel like, again, even though that we didn't know what that might have looked like on day one, just setting that intention helped us define the design. We knew it was very important for us, for example, to create a monument that could be explored in an infinite amount of individual pathways, that there wasn't going to be one master path that you had to take. We felt that was very important and really resonated with the brief here. So we wanted multiple paths towards justice, right? And as we've learned again from the history of our community, there isn't a single path towards justice, right? The path for two-spirited peoples is looks very different than the path for a gay man who, who went through the purge is very different than somebody who was fighting for marriage laws is very, you know, and so we didn't want to lump everybody together. It was very important. And so that's why this grid of wands really helps us create this sense of multiplicity and this t tension between individual choices and sort of community paths towards the, the ultimate goal, which is justice here. So we really started with these statements, you know, a statement about revealing this struggle, a statement about visibility and invisibility, a statement about multiplicity of paths towards justice, a statement about healing and really surrounding the monument with healing, uh, and a statement about community, that at the end of the day, at the end of your visit to the monument, there has to be a big moment of community and a big moment of gathering, whether that happens at the table or that happens in the big clearing towards the north where large events can take place and celebrations can take place because this is not just a place of mourning. This is also a place of celebration. Rami, I understand that when you were talking to Noam about the function of the monument, that it would be a sort of a vessel for expression. What did you mean by that? That's right. When we started working with Noam and Rebecca, you know, they did come to us with this idea that they wanted to create an acoustic experience and that they felt that that was a very strong way to really connect with visitors. And so we thought maybe what, what our task is going to be 
is to create a vessel that can house this acoustic piece so that it is both located in the landscape, but also guides visitors through it. And so that was from the very early days of the competition, that was a very strong intent on both of our parts. The prospect of creating an audio art piece, an electronic art piece that's 24 hours a day and year round in a winter city like Ottawa is difficult. And it actually presented quite a hard design challenge to all of us. That's why I was so happy when Iraklis joined the team, because, you know, just having voices wafting through the atmosphere like that is easier said than done. Iraklis, what did that actually take to get the voices and the sound to move around and through the site? First of all, we had the challenge of sub-zero temperatures in a Canadian winter. So we had to um, select the loudspeakers correctly. So we're using marine-grade steel and so on. All the cables are, are concealed and so on. But we also placed them. We designed the trenches underground in a way that would um, allow loudspeakers to avoid rainfall, essentially. And by shooting horizontally, we're also avoiding any concave surfaces that could collect water and sort of damage the speakers throughout time. These were sort of the real-time challenges that we had with Canadian winter. But then the other point that was quite important, and I think Noam alluded to it, is that it's an acoustic experience, but we don't want to be always the same. We don't want it to always repeat. So the way that we designed the system, essentially, has a randomizing factor, which means that there is a pool of audio files that have been recorded by Noam and Rebecca, but then the way that these audio files, these sounds, the words and the phrases that Noam explained earlier, the way that they're actually played back in the monument is quite randomized, not only in location, uh, but also in volume. So this way we kind of keep the interest going and we create actually infinite experiences for the visitor to, um, to go through. Glenn, what opportunities and challenges did the site provide for you as the landscaper on the project? There were a number. One of them is that it floods. So about half of the site has the possibility of being inundated periodically and sometimes more severely. So that pushed the location where we could actually put the monument uh, uphill a little bit, and it provided some opportunities as a result of that to create a, a festival space on the, the downhill side of that, so that when you think about the programming overall for the site, that there are ways that it can be used, not just for these you know, somber and reflective moments, but also for something very celebratory. So the ability for the site to transform that way, we felt was, was really exciting as well, and fits into the theme overall of transformation as one of the ideas we wanted to be able to touch on through the landscape and through the monument. We're looking at that in a bunch of minor ways as well, like where there's, there's a butterfly garden and butterflies are a symbol recognized by the trans community, for example, as something as you know, joyful and, and celebratory of that transformation. The top of the site is a very busy roadway. Um, there's quite a bit of grade change, so making sure that the site was properly accessible uh, and working through it. Rami's crew at SOM did a lot of the, the grading studies, but uh, being able to get people elegantly down into this space was uh, a really uh, quite, quite a significant challenge. And then there's a, there's a highway running through, there's parking lots, the, the whole thing, uh, is, there's a lot of things we had to cope with on the edges to make sure that the, you know, the integrity of that experience was maintained. 
Rami, for SOM as a firm, how much of a innovation and a change in the way that SOM views architects and architecture because of your involvement and the involvement in this project, has it shifted the way that SOM sees the architecture world? SOM is an extremely old firm. It was started in the United States, as you mentioned, as early as the 1930s. It's a firm that has evolved with its time since then. And the way that it has done that is by always celebrating diversity, especially as it expanded internationally. I think SOM has always seen that as a strength, uh, being able to absorb different mentalities, being able to absorb different cultures, being able to learn from the local context is, I think, extremely important to the survival of, of such an old firm. It led me to wonder whether the firm itself is awakening to these issues as the larger society begins to awaken to the needs of LGBTQ2 plus people. Yes, I think we're very lucky that SOM as a firm is extremely dedicated to equity and inclusion and diversity overall. That has included a very robust and very visible pride group. And I think a lot of the focus is around community building and around visibility. As you said, very often our communities are simply invisible, right? We're everywhere, but also sometimes uh, very difficult to find. And so uh, it's so important for large firms, especially for firms that have international presences like SOM, to be very clear uh, about that visibility. It sends a very strong message. And projects like this are, of course, inscribed into that ethos. Noam, there are other team members that functioned in various levels on Team SOM. Who are they? It's a large group. And we were very well taken care of on Team SOM. And there, there was um, really uh, Rami and his associates and his colleagues uh, was a large pool of talent that we got to meet over the course of the summer not just from the New York office, but also um, folks that work with Arachnes and I on the video in, in Europe as well. And Rami, I understand as well that a very senior person at SOM was very supportive of SOM's involvement in this project, Chris Cooper. That's right. We're very lucky to have the support of the partnership at SOM that includes Chris Cooper, who was not just uh, in support of the project, but was actually the main design partner on this project as well as the support of Laura Edelman, who was the managing uh, partner on this project. Uh, and, and really the partnership at large was, uh, was very supportive of us, um, really putting effort and energy and intelligence into this. I'm curious as we approach the end of this conversation, what each of you hopes that the monument will achieve should the Team SOM monument get built. Lyle, what do you hope it will achieve? The National Capital Commission and the Purge Fund laid out, uh, as Rami uh, mentioned earlier, a very clear and concise set of objectives for this monument that acknowledges uh, the struggles, the, the difficulties, the discrimination, the trauma that LGBTQ2 plus people that we have faced uh, for many, many years and generations, but also the agency, the fact that we have been able to, uh, as a community, both individually and collectively, seize every opportunity to turn things around, to assert our right to equality, 
to show concern even when there was indifference about uh, other members of our community and to uh, to struggle for really full equality across the spectrum and i think that this monument pre presents us with a tremendous opportunity to do that and uh, to be as the ncc uh, and purge committee said a beacon of hope not just for the lgbtq2 plus community really but for all canadians all citizens of the, of the world uh, that we share this uh, this common journey with. Arachnos, what about your thoughts? What do you hope this monument will achieve? I would want to think that this monument acts as an um, indelible, I would say, reminder of what did happen in the second half of the past century and will manage to simultaneously remind Canadians of something shameful on one hand, certainly, but on the other hand, open the path towards uh, healing and in many ways, celebration. To uh, someone who works for a very large firm in Germany, but Arup is in many parts of the world, do you see an awakening in Germany to these kinds of concerns? It's funny that you say that because there's many, 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 many parallels, particularly when we talk about uh, Germany. I mean, Germany is quite a particular case because it's a country that is not afraid to look back and um, instead of create monuments for celebration, also create monuments that are a shameful reminder in many ways. So there's quite a lot of parallels here, particularly when you're comparing with Germany. No question about that. But on the other hand, through its own journey, New Germany is now a place that in many ways celebrates diversity, I would say is a leader in celebrating diversity, particularly when it comes to all the freedoms, freedom of sexual orientation, certainly being high up there, which is something that uh, particularly in the capital where I happen to live is very, 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 very visible. So the answer is certainly a big and strong yes. Glenn, what do you hope that the monument will achieve? I guess the real hope I have is that this place unlike a lot of monuments, which tend to be sort of a monotone, like there's really one reading. One of the things that I think this SOM has done a brilliant job of is, is create a place that has so many different facets to it and so many different ways that you can experience it and different things you can take away. And if it was possible within that, that this monument became part of the life of the Ottawa community. There was actually a place that people went to for many different things and it had many different personalities and all those things are reflected and that, that would be a roaring success. What about you, Norm? What do you hope the monument will achieve? I'm thinking back to a conversation Rebecca and I had recently with a linguist who's also from Laxul, um, Pat Mingwans, and she actually was the one who brought the term Bapewen out into the open I learned about it through uh, Albert McLeod and Roger Roulet, but it was actually Pat who just, who kind of reclaimed the word and she translated it thusly. She said the root is bapi, which is to struggle physically through an opening, like through a window or a hole in a blanket and to get to the other side, to the freedom and open air, full stop. And I just think that that's such a beautiful thought and uh, that would be my hope for this monument. And a final thought from you, Rami, what do you hope the monument will achieve? My hope is the monument will represent diversity, not only as we currently understand it, but for generations to come. I think that will be a sign of true success. 
this is a monument that is surrounded by other monuments, monuments to war, monuments to different struggles. But the difference is that the struggle for justice for LGBTQ2 plus people is one that is ongoing. And so we have to create something that is both timeless and abstract enough to truly survive for the next centuries to come. I really thank you for taking all the, your precious time because I know you're all exceptionally busy. And Heraclus uh, is up really late in Berlin, so thank you for that. Thanks to all of you here in Winnipeg and in New York to be so helpful to us. It was such a pleasure to be in the presence of such wonderful, thoughtful, deep, compassionate people. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Terry. Let's win this Thanks one, you guys. Let's yeah. win this so we can keep hanging out for the next few years. Maybe. Okay. Nice. All right. Thanks, okay. Thanks, okay. Terry. Thank you. Thank you very Bye, much. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thanks, Terry. Bye. Bye. Special thanks today, as always, to Jason Chan, Jason Shields, and Brandy O'Reilly of the Faculty of Architecture. I'm Terry McLeod, your host, producer, and writer. See you next week on Prairie Design Lab. <laughs>